Listener Production. From the Inside with Peter Ricks. Peter Ricks is an Australian music industry veteran who has spent his life working in and around the music business in Australia. From managing artists like Marsha Hines, John English, Hush and Billy Field to 14 years as the original producer and chairman of the ARIA Music Awards. Along the way, Peter has made a lot of friends and it's some of these friends that you will meet over the course of this series. They are the success stories and the survivors, fascinating characters who have helped steer the Australian music business from the 70s onwards and somehow are all still relevant and thriving today. This episode features one of the leading figures in the hierarchy of Australian music. John Watson is best known as the manager of an astonishing roster of recording artists, from Silverchair to Missy Higgins, Birds of Tokyo, Paul Mack, The Presets, Goitier, Dustin Tebbett, and these days, Cold Chisel and Midnight Oil. It's a hell of a list. John also runs his own recording and publishing outfits and is a serious success story. Here is Peter Ricks and his conversation with John Watson. Um, I wanted to uh, commence by declaring our mutual allegiance to a Trivial Pursuit team that once a year comes together and seems to regularly fail at winning the Nordoff Robbins Trivial Pursuit competition but I am willing to announce to the world that we won. We did. The aptly named Desperates finally, after nine years, um, got the gold instead of our regular silver and bronzes. Yeah. And, of course, as we both know, it was because we got the lead, of our, lead out of our saddlebags this year. We got rid of John O'Donnell, <laughs> brought in some fresh blood, and, uh, and that got us over yeah. the line. So thank and God, O'Donnell, that guy. And O'Donnell, <laughs> who happens to be the co- your co-manager of cultures, has never forgiven us. Yes, it's been one of the great joys of uh, 2017. <laughs> so let's start. Tell, tell me what you think a manager really does? Um, Well, the famous cynical version is that a manager does the unnecessary for the ungrateful. Um, However, I think that a better example, better definition would be that managers do what artists either can't do for themselves or don't want to do for themselves. So we are the yin to their yang. We are there to fill in the areas where they are either unwilling or unable to really take care of things. And... Are there successful acts that you know of that are their own managers? Um, There are some artists who require their managers to be more of a bull bar. I I sometimes use the metaphor that if you think about your career as being like a truck going down a a freeway, um, some artists just want to drive the truck and have the manager be the bull bar on the front. The artist's making all the decisions, the manager just needs to mow down everything that's in the way. Those relationships can sometimes work, but often they end up being quite limited because there are, no one's got a monopoly on knowledge and there will be some areas where the artist has blind spots and they, they'll suffer from that. Other artists want the manager to drive the truck and they just want to party in the back. So long as, you know, the good times keep rolling, they really don't care where the manager takes the truck. Um, those artists' careers normally end up where the truck goes over a cliff, the manager is nowhere to be seen and they spend the rest of their lives wondering where the money went. Um, the way we typically describe our role is that we're like navigators so the manager is in the driver's in the passenger seat. The mm-hmm. artist is always in the driver's seat, but the manager's in the passenger seat saying, up here I think you should turn left for this reason and that reason. You said you wanted to get to point A. This is the way we get to point A. 
And ultimately, the artist is driving the truck. If they choose to go straight ahead when you tell them to turn left, then you end up going over the cliff with them. But, um, you know, hopefully there's enough of a mutual respect and a mutual trust that they'll listen to your navigating advice. You haven't gone off the cliff yet, though, have you? Oh, there's been a number of times we've gone off the cliff. And there's also been a number of times where the artist has ignored those directions so consistently that we've gone, you know, this isn't working for either of us. Mm. We need to get out of the truck and you need to get somebody else to be your navigator because clearly we're not on the same page about where you want to go. There is a time, I mean, I've gone through it, where you want someone to do things that are seem to be bleedingly obvious that they've got to, for their career to move forward, they've got to make alterations and they won't do it out of not just stubbornness because they, but because they love what they're, what they're into at the time. That seemed to me to be much more about acts from the seventies than it does from the modern era. They, in, in, in a modern era, surely it's a five year attention span to anything. Yeah. Look, I think that many of those sorts of issues arise from, the core conundrum of of the music business and the creative industries in general, which is that we have to sell a product that exists for purposes other than being sold. And by that I mean that if you make a toothbrush, it's clearly there to be sold. However, if you write a song, it is at least partly just a piece of personal expression. It's part of how you're reacting emotionally to the world. It's, it's, it's art to you. It then has the added element of being something to sell. So there's always a... Um, attention between the creative side of the business, the just the pure self-expression part, and the commercial side of the business, which is, okay, how do we actually turn that into something that sustains the business? And that's, so most of the conundrums arise from that. The artist wants to spend mm-hmm. more time, um, you know, in a studio writing, but needs to go out on tour if they're going to be able to keep paying their weekly wages bill, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that that's, that's a hard thing for people outside the music business to, to sort of comprehend. I, some years ago, um, was doing some MBA studies and I did a marketing course for the first time, which was interesting because I'd been doing marketing for 20 years, but I'd never actually done any study in the area. So most times in life you study at the start and then <laughs> before you go... You, before and then, you start uh, making the errors. Exactly. And then you go out and you sort of impl- try to apply your theory to the real world. This was the opposite way around. I had all this real world experience and they were sort of giving me the theory afterwards. So I was yeah. going, oh, is that what you call that? Oh, we do that all the time. But right? did, did the course agree with what you'd been doing for 20 years? Uh, well, in some respects, but in this respect not. And this is coming back to my point about you know yeah. the product itself being somewhat conflicted. So they were talking about how in normal marketing, what you do is you go out and talk to customers, you work out what unmet needs do they have. So for example, they're looking for a toothpaste that both whitens and deals with tartar. We need, that's an unmet need. And then when you work out, okay, how do we design that product? What channels will reach those sorts of consumers? What message will resonate with them? And you send your message off down those channels and that's classic marketing. So they went around the the room and they said, can everyone talk about how that works in their businesses? And so I remember one person worked for a baby food company, you know, like baby formula. Yeah. And um, she said, yeah, that's pretty much what we do. We have all these different types of baby formula. They're all really the same thing within the tins, but we have some in pink tins and some in blue tins because, you know, people like to think they're for girls and boys. And we have one for colicky babies. There's a little less of some chemical, but it doesn't really make any difference, but it lets people think that it's special. And we segment that way. We design our product accordingly. And they then went to someone from a bank and he said, yeah, well, we've got all these different mortgages and we sort of, you know, tailor them. They're really largely similar, but one's for a first-time buyer and one's for an investor and so forth. And they came to me and said, so how do you guys, you know, design your product? I said, well, the artist goes out, 
they break up with the love of their life, they come home, they drink a bottle of scotch, they write a song about it, hopefully in the morning when they wake up they remember it and they've recorded it and they send it to us and then we figure out how to flog it. And, and they all laughed and I was like, no, actually I can tell you the song titles. Like, that's yeah. really truly like what happens, particularly I think with the sorts of artists we represent, they're artists for whom the art is typically the main driver, that's the engine, yeah. and the commerce is the caboose. But, but recognising f- f- for, for any creative art form, and music seems to me to be a core changer of society, but most of the best musicians I've ever had anything to do with recognise it's a commercial creative art form, that they, they still have to sell a record. They can't stick it in the bottom of the bag and wait for their death for them to be discovered 25 years after they passed away. Is that true in your world? Um, I think that there was probably... I think that it's come full circle is what I think. I think that in the 70s, certainly my experience of working with Minato and Cole Chisel, they have a drive and a work ethic that is unlike the sort of 90s and 2000 acts that I had cut my teeth on otherwise. Mm. Um, I think that comes from being born of the pub scene where you had to fight to get attention, like, you know, literally to get people into your venue instead of the one down the road because there was a lot of competition. And then once they were there and getting drunk to look at the stage instead of looking at the girl across the bar. So there's a drive to that era of artists, which is perhaps what you're talking about as well, that they viewed themselves at some level as entertainers, as people that needed to, you know, their audience was a big part of why they were doing it. They weren't just doing it for themselves, they were doing it for their audience. Mm. You know, in the case of the oils... They were looking for a different type of connection with their audience, you know, inspiring their audience, you know, about certain issues and so forth. Um, but nonetheless, the audience was very much part of the raison d'etre of the whole thing. Um, I think that in the 90s, in that sort of post-grunge era and the sort of maybe even post-punk, there was a different mindset that arose, which was that the artist was on the stage and the audience was lucky enough to be allowed to witness them. And that for a period of time... There's certainly a generation or two of artists who, for whom, you know, at a time where the business was, there was a lot more money kicking around and big record companies had big advances and big budgets. You could put a video on MTV and it did your legwork for you. Um, I think for for the next generation of artists, they, they were probably able to get away with, frankly, being much less commercially minded and, frankly, quite bloody minded when it come to, came to commercial decisions. But I think that for the newer generation of artists, the internet's changed everything. Now the good news is that you can do everything for yourself. The bad news is you've got to pretty much do everything for yourself. So the artist is much more responsible for recording the music, for making the videos, for communicating with the fans directly on social media and so forth. So these days we're back to driven, in this case tech-savvy artists, but artists who are, again, engaging with the audience in different ways. It's not off the stage of a pub. It's potentially 140 characters or one photo at a time. But the point is that the audience is back to being in the centre of why the artist is doing what they do. So I think we've actually come a very long journey between the 70s and now, and I probably had the fortune or misfortune to be to arrive in the business at a time that was a low watermark for audience engagement. So let's go back to the 70s just for a minute. So sure, we, but we, you would say that. Yeah, well, naturally, because <laughs> I'm very comfortable in the 70s, John, is there was a... In, when, when I spoke to you about coming and chatting away, that we, you reminded me that you were raised, born, bred in Townsville, 
and there was a line called um, The Darkness on the Edge of Townsville, which <laughs> uh, for anybody listening to this that's in Townsville, I humbly apologise on behalf of John Watson. H- how did that work for you? How did you... How, Raised, born, bred in a town that's frankly a long way away from where you you are these days. I, I well, know I think, there was a band involved, wasn't there? So I think that Townsville. Uh, so I was born in 1966. Um, so I was raised in Townsville in the you know in the 70s and, and early 80s. Um, Fortio, by the way, I Fortier. remember at Ville. Well, uh, um, Steve Price still on the air up there. Um, I uh, I was raised in, in a very different era. Townsville then was very different from what it is now. You know, there was one commercial TV station that was on air for eight hours a day. There was no um, FM radio. There was certainly no internet. You know, we used to get our music news. The NME would arrive via sea mail from the UK and it was four months out of date. And I can vividly recall I'd been listening to Joy Division's album Closer. I'd loved that album and I'd been playing it heaps. And I went down and bought the new copy of NME that was just a lazy four months old. And the front cover headline was, you know, Ian Curtis has committed suicide. I think I've been listening to his music for four months. I had no idea. So that wouldn't happen now. You know, yeah. that, so regional areas, I think, are much more connected. You know, the radio networks are, are national now. The internet, there's cable TV, there's, you know, um, aggregated um, media of all sorts. So, but in those days, there was definitely a sense that life happened elsewhere. Um I worked at the local music store in, in Townsville, which was a, a record store from when I was 15 through when I was 20, so in my high school and, and early uni years. Brashes? Uh, no, no, no. It was a small independent store. It was just like the store in High Fidelity. Uh, we oh, were the wow. only We were the only store um, north of Brisbane that used to carry independent music, and it was still the most formative uh, experience I've had professionally because... Um, in Sydney, you might have a blues store and a metal store and, a, and an indie store and a jazz store... Um, Townsville wasn't big enough for that. So our store sold all of that stuff. So we sold, sure, we sold the top 40, but we sold everything around the side of the top 40. And in that era, you weren't going to hear it on the radio. There was no Spotify. So how are we going to discover this music? Well, I got to hear Muddy Waters. I got to hear Van Morrison. I got to hear all sorts of things. I got to hear the Easy Beats. Um, And so I ended up with this great sort of, you know, musical education through working at this record store that I would never have got anywhere else. And the guy who owned the store was a natural promo and marketing guy. And so um, that was really a fantastic training ground for me. But at the same time, Townsville was definitely a place where you had that sense. We'd, we'd come to Sydney on holidays and all of a sudden there was just so much more going on. Um, so there was definitely that sense that life happened elsewhere. And some years later, to, to come back to your question eventually, um, some years later I was in, in Townsville with a client and they were sort of complaining about uh, about it. And, uh, you know, I said, well, you know, now you know why my favourite album as a teenager was Springsteen's Darkness on the Edge of Town, you know, an entire album about feeling trapped and needing to escape. And they said, ah, I get it, Darkness on the Edge of Townsville. <laughs> and I thought, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. That that was that would have been the story of my teenage years. So the, the, <coughs> the Spliffs, is that the name of the band you were in? It is. What did you do in the band? I was the bass player and I played the telephone. Well, you were the booker as well. I was, yeah, I was the, the hustler and the manager. So my usual line, Peter, is that my career has been one long downhill spiral. Um, From I, your high, the high point being the bass playing in the band? No, well, the high point being working in a record store and playing in an indie band. I think those two things have sort of complete virtue. Right. Um, and everything else is a backward step. If you play in a band, you know that 
the greatest scum of the earth are the music journalists that write about you. <laughs> so after I sort of stopped playing in a band, I became a freelance music journalist for Rolling Stone and Ram Magazine and a number of those. Still in Townsville? No, we'd, our band had moved to Sydney. Uh, we played around a heap. We you know, supported lots of other bands. And then our, all of our instruments were... Um, burnt in a van fire, um, which is its own amusing story in hindsight. We took that as a message from God to just stop making that racket. Um, And uh, so I was working as a freelance music journalist after that. So, you know, that's a big step down. I'd I'd become one of the scum. And then if you're you're a music journalist, you know that the real scum are A&R guys at record companies because they sign all these ridiculous records that you're supposed to review. Like, what idiot signed this? You you need to tell our our listeners what an A&R guy is. So an A&R guy is the artist and repertoire, and of course they can also be A&R gals. Because um, you were an A&R guy. I did succumb to being an A&R person. Um, I, uh, so A&R is the, you know, it stands for antagonism and rejection. Not really. It stands for <laughs> artist and repertoire. You've had um, these lines going for a long time. I've got no know. new lines, Peter. They are all <laughs> deathly rehearsed. Um, they, A&R is, is the process of finding new artists, signing them to record deals, making records with them, being yeah. their advocate within the record company. So um, A deeply depressing job at certain points in your life when the records fail, I would have thought. It's, it's a difficult job because you are held responsible for the success or failure of projects when really your ability to influence them is somewhat minor. So um, A&R people are often you know, vastly over-rewarded for success and vastly over-punished for failure because they're, they're really only of marginal influence. But someone's got to make the decisions on who to sign and not to sign. That's ultimately the head of the company, really, but the A&R person's bringing in the shortlist from which that head of the company's deciding which to choose. Oh, I thought you just blamed the promo department for not... Well, we always do. It was always a hit when it left our office. Um, but uh, so, I, so, yes, my, my career spiral continued from um, artist and record store worker to music journalist, from music journalist to A&R person. And then if you're an A&R person working in a record company, you know that the real bastards of the music business are the managers because they're always the ones that are sort of, you know, looking to make you spend more money or refusing to sign their band to you. So after four or five years of working at Sony in the early 90s doing A&R and doing international marketing as well, which is the process of getting Australian music released in other territories and supported with marketing promotion. It was a breeding ground though, wasn't it? It was a fantastic, it was a fantastic place to get a grounding in the real music business, if you like. That plus working in a record store were the two really formative things for me. Um, So I left there in 95 to manage Silverchair. John Watson. In a moment, John looks at what led to the next phase of his career in the music business coming across a group of three young teenagers from Newcastle, Silverchair. Yeah, so you, Silverchair arrived at Sony first or you found them in Newcastle? Um, so what happened was John O'Donnell, who we mentioned earlier... Yeah, that, that the, guy that fortunately left the trivia position. <clears throat> the lead yeah. in our saddlebags of our trivia team. Uh, John and I had been good friends. He was an associate editor at Rolling Stone when I was a freelance journalist, so he used to throw me the odd bit of work here and there, the stories they didn't want to write about. Um, generous, and man. Generous, generous man, generous man, generous man, bad at trivia, but generous man. And, um, he, uh, so we were wanting to start at Sony, a new independent label, sort of, you know, it was this post Nirvana Pearl Jam world. Everybody was looking for more alternative acts. And so we brought John in to run this label and he didn't have an office at that point. So he and I were literally sharing my office. He was sitting across my desk. It was his second day at work. And we got a phone call from a friend who told us about this band that Triple J had just recorded on the weekend 
um, this band had won a demo competition that SBS had run and part of the prize was to get a day's recording in the Triple J studio. And they'd gone in and recorded this song called Tomorrow and it sounded like it was going to do pretty well. Then started playing on the radio yet, but everyone at Triple J was buzzing about it. So they sent us over a copy. We thought it was fantastic. Um, we tracked down... Um, one of the mums who was looking after the band. I wanted to ask you about the parents and all this, yeah. So um, we tracked down one of the mums and organised. They had two gigs coming up. One was on a Tuesday night and one was on a Friday night. And we couldn't go to the Tuesday one because the head of Sony International was in town. Big dinner at Doyle's in Watson's Bay, you know, must attend. So we said, that's fine, we'll, we'll miss the Tuesday, but we're there on Friday, you know. Anyway, Mushroom flew up for the Tuesday gig. Ah. And on the Thursday, we called to say, now, what time are they on tomorrow night? They're playing a little, they're playing in a bistro at the back of a pub called the Jules Tavern in Jewelstown. In and, Newcastle? Yeah, Jewelstown, which is just a little bit to the south of, right. of Newcastle. Um, and uh, so we called on the Thursday. They said, oh, look, you probably shouldn't bother coming. Mushroom came on Tuesday. We really liked them. We're going to sign with them. We're like, it's been two days. Um, Kedinsky has a certain aura about him when he turns up at these jobs. He he absolutely did. I don't think he'd gone to the show, but he'd flown up the next day on the recommendation of the people who'd been at the show. Right. And he'd definitely already met with, with the mums at that point and they were suitably impressed, as Michael can be impressive in those situations. Mm. Um, and so they uh, we went up on the Friday anyway and we sort of really connected with the band more. Um, we were a bit younger, I suppose, than, than the Mushroom crew and... Um, you know, we bought them Pearl Jam CDs and they were into all of that and um, we had a very strong view that the they were a great band full stop, not a great band for their age. In fact, if anything, the age was a problem because it meant that people would view them as a novelty act when they should be viewing them as just a really great band. And our view was always that if they were capable of doing that at 14 and 15, which is what they were at the time, Daniel was 15, the other two were 14, um, if they're capable of doing that at that age, imagine what they'll do at 25 if they're just given the chance. Mm. So John and my approach was to say to them, you know, we will take a really long-term view here. We won't exploit sort of the novelty. We also liked all the newer songs that they'd been writing, whereas Mushroom had sort of gravitated more towards the previous batch of songs. Tomorrow songs. Uh, yeah, we liked Tomorrow and those sort of things. They had some other songs, probably a little more sort of Guns N' Roses type influence, more, more basic rock songs that... Right that were just from, you know, how artists have different batches yeah. of songs. So um, I think that that sort of also helped us. So ultimately the band signed with us. And when I was driving back from Jules Town that night with John, who is is thinking that this A&R game is pretty easy in his first week at Sony, <laughs> um, he, uh, I, I remember turning to him and saying, you know, I love my job, but if I was ever going to manage, leave Sony to manage a band, this would be the one. Right. Um, you know, they played three sets that night in the bistro, half covers, half their own songs, but they had most of what became Frog Stomp. There were literally six people there and four of them were watching the football game on TV in the corner and just standing there going, I cannot believe that this is actually happening. It was that obvious. And it would have been obvious to anybody from the music business who saw them. It was that undeniable. Really? And and was that more about Daniel's aura or the band? Just the whole thing. Right. You know, I mean, they, they were still very shy. Because the songs were so strong, weren't The they? songs were so strong. They had Tomorrow. They had Shade. They had Pure Massacre. They didn't have Israel's Son. Um, they had Suicidal Dream, I think. Uh, yeah, they had most of what became Frog Stomp. And so we signed them um, and uh, put out Tomorrow as an EP, which we 
had a very cunning marketing plan for that was going to be, we'll price it for a dollar more, we'll do an EP, we'll sort of really downplay it, keep it cool, keep it underground, keep it indie, try and sell about 6,000 copies. Went to number one, went triple platinum, <laughs> so it became uh, this massive phenomenon. Yeah, got out. I mean, does it, did it get out of control? Completely out of control. And, you know, a lot of the... Um, the damage that happened from it getting out of control, I think, played out a lot over the subsequent years in terms of the things that Daniel in particular had to battle. And and that that out of control is about how how much just comes at you all day, every day, that you feel like you've got to say yes to, but at some point in time you should have said no to or just the road? It's a great question. Um, I, I think that it's a few different things. Uh I remember reading a book once, there's nothing sadder in life than to receive something before you have a chance to develop an appetite for it. Mm. And that was very much the silver chair story. You know, they were making music because they loved how it sounded, they loved music, they loved bands, but they never sought to be on the cover of Rolling Stone, let alone on the cover of the Daily Telegraph. Um, So we tried very hard not to fan the flames. We said no to everything. You know, the band wouldn't play Hey Hey at Saturday. They wouldn't give their photos. We bought every photo that existed of them so the teen mags couldn't do posters. Um, you know, when they did the arias, they didn't accept the awards. They played someone else's song. We tried everything possible well, not to... Well, he nearly to... killed himself in the arias. Well, Ben nearly killed himself, yeah, when he had butted the drum kit yeah, that, someone that, that right. was I, supposed to have a nick in it that someone I, had forgotten I rushed off to find out what the insurance policy was at the time. Yeah, it was, it's, a, it's great TV though. Um, but the, uh, they, they had a... The thing was, the more that we said no, the more that people wanted it. And that's sort of, you know, when you look back, it looks like a cunning marketing strategy because everybody wants what they can't have. But because we were saying no to things that everybody else was saying yes to, it just made the band more fascinating and drew more attention to them. But, see, most of our life's experiences, mine particularly, is much more based around Australia and and what what you can sort of half control here. Whereas Silverchair, it was global, wasn't it? Yeah, Frog Stomp was the first uh, Australian band. They were the first Australian band to have a top ten album in America since In Excess. Um, and Frog Stomp was, you know, a double platinum album in America and sold another million around the world. So they had extraordinary experiences. They played Saturday Night Live. They played on the awning of Radio City Music Hall. Um, but with that comes a level of craziness that people just can't imagine. I mean, just for example, there was a a person, a kid, who committed a murder in... I think Oregon or Washington State, to the northwest of, of the US. And allegedly he was playing Israel's son while he committed the murder. And so when the lawyer got to court, amongst the grab bag of excuses he tried to make was that this song had inspired the killing. The judge instantly ruled it out, said it was you know, a ridiculous claim, but that didn't stop the Australian tabloids from leaping all over it. And I had the experience of walking down Victoria Street in Potts Point, where I was living at the time with Daniel, trying deliberately to stand between him and the signs out the front of the newsagent, which had the Daily Telegraph, you know, front cover on it, which said, Silverchair song, quote, a script for murder. Dear me. Um, Another example of a similar thing was there was a, a girl with a long history of mental illness in Newcastle who took out an AVO against Daniel, which is an apprehended violence order, a restraining order. And she alleged that he'd been stalking her with a gun. Well, she had a long history of this. She'd done it like 30-something times to other people. Every time it had been found baseless. Um, And we looked into it and the the day that she said it had happened, he was actually in America. So it was another completely false claim. 
but it didn't stop the Newcastle newspaper from running a front page story with a big photo of Daniel with a sort of a threatening look on his face and the headline in huge World War Three declared size type said, he's got a gun. Um, you know, and Daniel had a young sister who was at school at the time who had to go to school and, and deal with that. So the pressures that uh, are brought to bear. You, yeah. know, you you see famous people in the news complaining about fame. You can, you know, it, it isn't, it's like, it's always like old diddums, you know. Um, most people would give their right arm and so forth. But there are these strange things and it's particularly strange in the instance of a kid who never really went out and looked for it. It's not like he went and used these tabloids to grow his fame yeah. and therefore owed them. Um, the fame came to him. Hence my point, there's nothing sadder in life than to receive something before you have a chance to develop an appetite for it. How old was he when all this was going on? 15, 16 years old. You know, the one of the tabloids um, stalked, uh, sorry, uh, staked out the high school in Newcastle because we hadn't been doing interviews, so they wanted photos. And they paid a couple of kids to say which gate he was going to ride out. And they had a motor scooter and a cameraman on it and chased him through traffic the whole way home, taking photos of him on his bike, put it on the front page of the paper. At the time, they'd sold 300,000 albums and a CD was about 20 bucks. So, of course, as you can imagine, every cent of that would be going to Daniel, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, so the headline read, The Six Million Dollar Boy. Um, and so, you know, these, I, I, as you can tell from how I talk about it, this stuff very sort of fresh and very raw in my head because you feel very protective, you know? Yeah, quite. But it, as well, the, the issue for someone like Daniel is, that, of course, he's, he has talent first and the fame followed. It's not about him seeking fame. It's about his talent becoming recognised and the end result is huge sales and the result well, of the f- sales becomes the fame that others look for with no talent at all. Precisely and right. It's, a, it's, it's, a, it's the old line about, you know, having as much use as a bicycle does to a fish, yeah. you know. Um, and so what – and you'll often find this. People who are not great communicators in real life mm. seek to communicate through – writing songs or writing plays or writing books or whatever the case may be, in Daniel's case, writing songs. Those songs strike a massive chord with people because they really speak to them. They're a really effective form of communication, a deep form of communication. They strike deep chords. So the audience then desperately wants to get to know the person who made it. So the person who is least equipped to communicate is constantly put into a situation, whether it's at meet and greets with fans or in interviews at radio stations, where they're expected to be great communicators. The whole point in the first place was that they were bad communicators. That's why they were songwriters. So this is why, you know, the management role can be quite difficult because you're trying to look after the needs of a career, but you mainly need to look after them in the first instance, the needs of the person. And those two things are often um, pulling in different directions. So... You're at Sony and you then make a transition to becoming the band's manager. How long did between, How long in that process was it before you became the no guy, the Dr. No? <laughs> well, I think we were probably the Dr. No guys even within the record company. You know, we oh. were the ones that were having to consistently, for example, push back against the band playing Hey Hey It's Saturday, which was sort of the countdown of its day that everybody did. Well, what do you mean you won't do Hey Hey It's Saturday? Um so, you know, we didn't want people to see how young the band was. We didn't want them to talk. You know, the first time, it's hard to imagine now, but the, for the first 18 months of their career, they were never seen speaking on television because when they did, they were undeniably 15-year-olds mm. um, and we wanted it to feel magical. They were just 
the music didn't sound like 15-year-olds. No, the vocal sure didn't, did it? No, and not, neither did how they all played live. You know, they were, they were a great live rock and roll band, full stop. Not a great band for their age. So, um, so we were Dr. No within the record company as well. But the answer to your question is that we signed them in about the August of 94, the July of 94, and I gave my notice in the May, June of 95. Oh, right. So it was a fair period of time, but I knew for probably the last five months of that that I was going to be leaving to manage them, and that's every manager's dream. So I was within the record company um, knowing that I was going to be leaving to manage the band, So I would, and I was the, in charge of international marketing. So I could have a meeting with myself and say, should we fly this band to Europe to do three showcase gigs and make it unrecoupable? <laughs> I believe that we should. Yeah. Um, now, it worked I out. I can't believe the chairman of Sony at some point in time didn't take you into his office and beat you up. I think the chairman of Sony looked at how much money he made from Silverchair and uh, said that I was see. a very, very good investment. <laughs> um, so, uh, and you know, I'm the chairman of Sony and I have had a pretty good working relationship. I was, I'm one of the rare people who can say I worked for Dennis for. Uh, for nearly five years, and he never raised his voice at me once. We've always, you know, we've, he's raised his voice at me a few times since, but uh, but in my time working there, uh, he never raised his voice at me. We always had a pretty strong relationship. Another legend. Yeah, well, they, they certainly don't make them like that anymore. Peter Ricks is in conversation with manager, record label owner, and music publisher, John Watson. In part two, they look at the role of a manager in the life and career of a recording artist, when to stay close, when to keep your distance, how to deal with the big highs and the big lows. That's next time on From the Inside. From the Inside with Peter Ricks. Listener.